Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. A number of years ago, I read a book given to me by a friend written by Eric Metaxas. The title of the book was Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. It was the life story of that preeminent German theologian in the 20th century named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It told of his childhood, his growing up, and especially of his adult life, the development of his theology, and the development of his posture against Hitler. It was very moving to read the experience of Bonhoeffer, to trace the development of his thinking, and to admire the stance that he took in defense of the Jewish people. But as I came to the end of the book, I realized something was bothering me, really bothering me. As I finished the book, it continued to haunt me. It continued to perturb me, what I had just read in the final pages. I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar. There may be those who can tell us more about this reality. But what bothered me was very simple. By that point in time, the war was lost, and the Nazis knew it. The gardens knew that the war was basically lost. Some of them were only thinking about saving their skin after the war had finished. Because of that, security in some cases had become rather lax, particularly with where Bonhoeffer was held, the two or three different places he was held in his final days. What bothered me was the thought. It seems to me, I thought, that Bonhoeffer at certain different points could have just walked away. Walked away and been a free man. Why didn't he? Well, you know the reality of the story. On April 8 of 1945, he was tried by a sham court sentenced to die the following day, April the 9th. The camp doctor at the time was a Dr. H. Fisher Holstrom. He didn't realize, he didn't understand the, the prisoner with whom he was dealing at that time and would only later come to understand who Bonhoeffer was. It was years later then that Fisher Holstrom sat down and wrote some words to describe, to depict the final hours, final moments of the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is what he wrote. On the morning of that day, between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one of the rooms of the hut, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the first steps to the gallows, brave and composed. 
His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. It was April 9, 1945. On May 8, 1945, one month later, the Nazis surrendered and the war in Europe ended. And I was haunted by the thought, weren't there moments when he could have just walked away? Why didn't he? It's the same thought that haunts me as I trace the final hours of the life of Jesus. Those final hours, those final moments, it's the, sa the same question arises in my mind. He could have just walked away. Why didn't he? It's midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. The battle of the ages, the battle when the destiny of this world, in fact, the destiny of the universe, hangs in the balance. The battle has been fought. The battle has been won by the use of seven words, not my will, but yours be done. If Gethsemane teaches us anything, and it certainly does, if it teaches us anything, it teaches us this. Jesus could have just walked away. Certainly that is clear when we view what happened in Gethsemane, but he's made a decision. I'm going to stay the course. Your will, not mine, be done. Midnight in Gethsemane. Jesus rises from the cold, clammy earth and staggers back to the place where the three disciples still sleep. He is about to tell them, go ahead, sleep on, when suddenly he can hear the shouts and the voices. He can see the dancing firelight of the torches. And so instead he says to them, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. The mob arrives. The religious leaders, their lackeys, the Roman guard ready to arrest him. And in the melee that unfolds with one of his disciples seeking to defend him with violence, Jesus makes a profound statement. He says, don't you realize that I could at once ask my father and I would have more than 12 legions of angels? Translated, I could walk away right now. And my question is, why didn't he? But instead, the rough hands hold him fast, bind his hands, and head out through the Kidron Valley to three kangaroo courts where Jesus will be tried, if you want to use that term. The first will be the court of Caiaphas and his father-in-law, Annas, Annas, the previous high priest, Caiaphas, the current high priest, and their body, the Sanhedrin, they will try this itinerant Nazarene preacher. It's a sham of a court. But they will sit in judgment. They will hear him not once, but twice, maybe three times. The verdict, guilty. The sentence, death. The second court, 
the court of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. This, too, will be a kangaroo court, even though the truth is Pilate tries to get some honesty, some fairness. He tries to get some evidence submitted. He tries to speak in behalf of the prisoner. But because Pilate is a man with a wishbone instead of a backbone, he can't stand when the heat is turned up. So finally, verdict, guilty. Sentence, death. And the third court. The third court will be the court of Herod. To call it a court is to stretch the use of that term. Because in this case, instead of a court judge, we have a court jester. Somebody who wants to entertain and be entertained. Show us a trick, Jesus. I've heard you do magic. Show us. I'll be good to you. Silence. No response. Herod might as well have said, verdict, guilty. Sentence, death. And in the in-between times, between the trials, during the trials, as they moved him from one place to another, the buffeting, the slapping, the insults, the beatings, and then courtesy of Pilate, the lashing, the flogging. Now, you have to understand the Roman flogging. It was basically a cat of nine tails with each of those tails on the whip having embedded within the tail metal shards, sharp, ready to pry away the flesh from the hapless victim. In fact, listen. Listen to one description of what happened when the Romans lashed a prisoner. The Romans always beat their prisoners in a very cruel way. The law of the Jews allowed them to beat men no more than 39 times. The Roman law had no limit. When their prisoners fell down, the Romans picked them up. Then they began to beat them again. Sometimes they killed their prisoners like this. The prisoners' backs became like a field that a farmer has plowed. Pieces of skin hung from their backs. The Romans had decided that Jesus must die. Now they beat him by Roman law. What must Jesus have looked like by this time? They had beaten him with hands and whips. They had pulled out his beard. They had forced the sharp crown on his head. People have painted pictures of Jesus on the cross. None of them can show us what Jesus was really like by that time. Isaiah's description is better. Everyone was afraid of how he looked. He did not even look human. Nobody would recognize him as a man. And somewhere in the midst of all this, at the palatial estate of Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus had likely been placed in the pit in the basement, the holding cell, placed in the pit there to contemplate his fate while they did other matters related to the court. As he lay in that place, there must have been an understanding that he could walk away. 
It would have been while he was there that the full realization of the torturous death awaiting, of, awaiting him would have sunk in to his core. There he was, abandoned by every human friend. Foe only surrounded him. And a deepening chasm, infinitely dark, separating him from the heart of the Father. You could have walked away, Jesus. Why didn't you? And then finally, as we arrive in the morning hours, the sun has risen. Finally, Pilate stands him before the mob, and he says to them, Behold the man. And they, as though now possessed by demons, has, have had the experience of that darkness spreading like an emotional contagion among them as they scream with bloodlust in their hearts, Crucify! 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 And so Pilate, utterly bewildered and utterly spineless, finally takes water and begins to wash his hands, trying to wash off bloodstains that will never fade, says to them, Take him then. Crucify him, as for me, I find no fault in him. down the Via Dolorosa on the way to Calvary. At this point in the story, the pen of the gospel writer is the best window through which to observe. So we go to the gospel that has been our base of operations in this series, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, to read what then unfolded. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32, says this. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And thus the story is told. What I find remarkable in Matthew's telling of the account is that Matthew focuses on many details, details that happen, that transpire throughout the day. He tells us what the spectator said. He tells us something of the spectator's experience. But he says precious little about the crucifixion itself. He doesn't tell us, as often happens with martyrs, including with Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the writing of the camp doctor. Doesn't speak to us of the courage or the grace, the strength of the one who is to die. He doesn't tell us about the brutal suffering, how an utterly lacerated back rubbing up a, against a rough-hewn cross would have sent chills of pain shooting up and down his body. He doesn't tell us about the nails going through the wrists, splitting the nerve. His words are spare. In fact, if you're anything like me, the first read-through, you might even have missed what he says about the actual crucifixion. Let me reread it to you. Matthew 27, verse 35. Here's what he says. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. That's his description of the crucifixion. When they had crucified him. You might be interested to know that the other three gospel writers follow the same style, the same pattern, a brief statement of the crucifixion, which causes me to ask, why? Such a deadly moment with such a heinous type of execution. Why such spare words? Well, the gospel writers trying to maintain at least a shred of dignity for Jesus. 
where the gospel writers struck by the shame and humiliation that must have overcome all the followers of Jesus, that they had all either abandoned him or were following from a distance. Or possibly, the gospel writers knew, the people of their world knew crucifixion. They knew what it was like. They had seen it happen. No need to elaborate. Whatever the reason might have been, they knew Roman crucifixion. We do not. We live in a world that avoids cruel and unusual punishment. They lived in a world where Rome wanted the punishment to be as cruel and unusual as possible to serve as a deterrent to others. So from one commentary, allow me to read but one description of crucifixion. When a criminal reached the place, it says, of crucifixion, his cross was laid flat upon the ground. Usually it was a cross shaped like a T with no top piece against which the head could rest. It was quite low so that the criminal's feet were only two or three feet above the ground. There was a company of pious women in Jerusalem who made it their practice always to go to crucifixions and give the victim a drink of drugged wine which would help deaden the terrible pain. That drink was offered to Jesus, and he refused it. He was determined to face death at its worst with a clear mind and senses unclouded. The victim's arms were stretched out upon the crossbar, and it was usual for the nails to be driven through the wrists. Halfway up the cross, there was a projecting piece of wood called the saddle, which took the weight of the criminal, for otherwise the nails would have torn through his wrists. Then the cross was lifted and set upright in its socket. The terror of crucifixion was this. The pain of that process was terrible, but it was not enough to kill. And the victim was left to die of hunger and thirst beneath the blazing noontide sun and the frosts of the night. Many a criminal was known to have hung for a week upon his cross until he died raving mad. And Matthew simply says, when they had crucified him, And so there he hangs. There he hangs. Body disfigured. A bloody mass of humanity. Abandoned and yet still ridiculed. What could it be but utter and unadulterated evil that would drive a group of people, a mob of people, to heap insult upon mockery, upon ridicule, upon the man who has lived only to do them good. The crowd has gone mad. And the morning passes as Jesus hangs at Calvary. The passers-by, the religious leaders join in, epithets and insults. Will there be no voice? Will there be no one to stand in his defense? Will there be no friend to cry out, stop, don't do this anymore? Will there be no one to speak on his behalf, saving one 
who was a common criminal, who himself began by ridiculing, and who ended apparently witnessing the demeanor of the crucified one, thinking there is something godly about this man. It was the one ray of light for Jesus on that day. All else turned against him until finally it was as though at noontime nature itself could not take the scene anymore and nature herself stepped in and drew a curtain of darkness about him. The fear that spread through the crowd was profound, silencing the voices as, as people crept back to the city in fear, shielded at last, from the ever-prying eyes, the ever-wagging tongues, the ever-evil hearts. Jesus hangs in darkness. But while that darkness shielded him from their gaze, the darkness for Jesus was eternally dark and profound a deep and seemingly impenetrable darkness that filled the chasm between he and his Father. Until finally, when the darkness lifted at 3 o'clock, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somebody offered him anesthetic. And with one more cry, he was gone. Echoing through that story over and over and over again is the question, why didn't you just walk away? Why didn't you just leave? For 2,000 years, Preachers and teachers and poets and prophets and scholars and theologians and artists and songwriters and singers have been busy trying to answer that question. The answers range from the superficial to the profound. And if nothing else is obvious, at least this must be obvious, the answer is multi-layered, multifaceted. There is no way we can answer that question with just one statement. There was too much happening on Golgotha that day to be captured. In fact, we are told that what there was manifest is to be the science and song of the redeemed throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Then how could one poor preacher ever believe he could capture why he didn't walk away? in one statement or in one sermon. But having said that, I must add this, that within that multi-layered reality of what it was that kept Jesus there is one core reality 
that we cannot miss. Jesus didn't walk away because Jesus wanted to give you in Loma Linda, California, in the year of our Lord, 2019, a glimpse of the heart of God that could comfort you in your deepest moments, your darkest experiences, your blackest nights. Because there at Calvary, He gives us a vision of the character of a good and gracious God. Now, I can almost hear the questions. But Randy, you say, please. It is a heinous, dastardly form of execution. How could you possibly suggest that in the midst of that bloodletting and that bloodlust that somehow we are to capture a vision of a good God? Several decades ago, J. Reynolds Hoffman, preacher and evangelist, suggested that maybe the answer to that lay in the fact that we sometimes miss the reality that two things were happening simultaneously at Golgotha, at Calvary that day. Two things. On the one hand, we have the crucifixion. The crucifixion, that horrible instrument of Rome, that manner of execution that had almost no peer. We have the crucifixion. But on the other, we have the cross, a symbol of the love and the grace and the goodness of God. Both of those are happening at the same time. Because of that, we have, on the one hand, the ultimate revelation of what the prince of darkness will do in his plan to dominate and destroy and on the other hand, we have a vision of what the Prince of Life will do to save and uplift. Both happening at the same time. We see what the enemy of your souls would do to you with utter clarity. We see what the Savior of your souls will do for you with utter clarity. In the crucifixion and the cross. You see, the crucifixion was evil at its lowest. The cross was God at his highest. The crucifixion was humanity at its worst. The cross was God at his best. The crucifixion was evil at its darkest. The cross was God at his brightest. The crucifixion was what humanity, when allowed to do so, would do to God. And the cross was what God will do when allowed to for humanity. The crucifixion was what we did to God. The cross is what God did for us. And so the supreme revelation of both the heart of the enemy and the heart of our Savior are revealed in the same moment. The supreme revelation of the heart of each. Thus it is that the supreme revelation of the hatred and the malignity of Satan and the supreme revelation of the love of God were both evident in one concentrated place called Calvary in the person of one man named Jesus on one Friday called Good at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
Jesus is saying, if you look to the cross, you will see the heart of God on full display, a heart who will descend to the deepest, darkest depths to save any single one who so desires. Maybe that's why Max Lucado, the preacher and writer, captures the pivotal nature of the cross in history with these words. It rests, he writes, on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolized and despised it, gold-plated and burned it, worn and trashed it. History has done everything but ignore it. How could you ignore such a piece of lumber? Suspended on its beams is the greatest claim in history. A crucified carpenter claiming to be God on earth, divine, eternal, the death slayer. Never has timber been regarded so sacred. No wonder the apostle Paul called the cross event the core of the gospel. It's bottom line sobering. It is history's hinge. And as history's hinge, it is upon that hinge that a door turns, a door that opens the way into the very presence, the throne room of God. If you came to worship this morning filled with fear, that door opens to a God who says, do not fear. If you came to worship this morning lonely in your heart of hearts, that hinge swings open a door into the presence of the one who says, I am with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you came to worship this morning burdened by guilt, that door opens to the sin-forgiving God. If you came burdened with anxiety, that door swings open to the God who says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. If you came needing salvation, that door swings open to a God, to a Jesus who says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. If it is the hinge of history, it opens to us a vista of the character of a God who knows what it is to descend to the depths. So if you're abused, if you're rejected, if you're abandoned, if you're ill, if you're experiencing darkness, the hinge will swing that door open to a God who can say to you, I know the darkness. I've been in the darkness. I have plumbed it to its depths, and I have conquered it, and know that I am with you even to the end of the earth. That's what Calvary does. That's the statement of the cross of Christ. It's a statement that says no matter how much fails and falls in your life, the cross still stands. It is the one guarantee that remains that God is with you, that he is with me, that he knows our frame. He sympathizes and saves.
That's why Jesus didn't walk away. So that in Loma Linda, California, in April of 2019, you could know you were not alone. That the heart of a good and gracious God is with you. The writer Philip Yancey writes of his wife, Janet. Janet, who works in an extended care facility caring for patients with dementia. She runs a Christian reading group there in that facility, which includes a patient named Betsy. Betsy has been there for some years, declining slowly but surely from Alzheimer's. She's lost contact with reality she can't remember. Every day she is introduced as though for the first time to Janet and to the other members of the group. She forgets what was just said and what just happened. But Janet discovered that Betsy can read and read well. Sure, she gets caught on words and can't shake herself loose from them, but with some gentle urging, she can proceed ahead. I want to read you in Yancey's own words what happened one day. One Friday, the senior citizens who prefer older hymns they remember from childhood selected the old rugged cross for Betsy to read. On a hill far away stands an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. She began and stopped. Suddenly, she became very agitated. I can't go on, she said. I can't go on. It's too sad, too sad. Some of the seniors gasped. Others stared at her dumbfounded. In years of living at home, not the home, not once had Betsy shown the ability to put words together meaningfully. Now, obviously, she did understand. Janet calmed her. That's fine, Betsy. You don't have to keep reading if you don't want to. After a pause, though, she started reading again and stopped at the same place. A tear made a trail down each cheek. I can't go on, she said. It's so sad. Unaware that she had said the same thing just two minutes ago. She tried again and again reacted with sudden shock of recognition, grief, and the exact same words. Finally, when Betsy seemed tranquil, Janet led her to the elevator to return her to her room. And then to her amazement, Betsy began singing the hymn from memory. The words came in breathy, chopped phrases, and she could barely carry the tune, but anyone could recognize the hymn. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. New tears fell, but this time Betsy kept going, still from memory, gaining strength as she sang. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. 
So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Somewhere, writes Yancey, somewhere in that tattered mind, damaged neurons had tapped into a network of old connections to resurrect a pattern of meaning for Betsy. In her confusion, two things only stood out, suffering and shame. Those two words summarize the human condition, the condition she lives in every day of her sad life. Who knows more suffering and shame than Betsy? For her, the hymn answered that question. Jesus does. That's why he didn't walk away. I can't tell you why Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't walk away or even if he actually would have been able to. But I can tell you this. Jesus could have without any question. Yet he did not. Because he wanted you to understand the heart of God and to know that that God understands your deepest darkness and is with you and yearns to save you.